Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. It is so good to be here in Montague with you folks. The last time that I was here, there were two seats over here, two seats here, two seats here. You get the idea. You all had masks on, and uh, a bunch of you I've never seen before, which is exciting. And a bunch of you I'm seeing for the second and third time, which is super exciting. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Dana. I'm one of the pastors at Cornerstone. Most of my time is spent out of the Cornwall facility, but there are a few Sundays in the year where I get to worship with my sisters and brothers in Montague and Stratford. And when I heard I was coming today, I've, I almost said I haven't slept, but I did sleep, but it is, it's just super great. For those of you who are into expository messages, which is one portion of scripture and you work through word by word, Greek, Hebrew, la la, this morning will drive you bananas because it's not that type of message at all. I'm going to be using a bunch of different portions of scripture. So if you're taking notes, just have your pen ready. And I'm a titles guy. And so if you are taking notes, I've simply called this morning wonderful words of life. Wonderful words of life. Now, not that song, but another song was written between 1871 and 1873. And it was recorded and became a hit with an eclectic group of musicians down through the years, never at the same time, but individually. It was recorded by Bing Crosby, by Frank Sinatra, by Gene Autry, Boxcar Willie, Burl Ives, Pete Seeger, and Slim Whitman. Now, my mom would used to go around the house singing the chorus to this song, and some of you may know this, some of you may not. It went like this, home, home on the range, where the deer and the antelope play or roam, depending on whether you're King James or not, <laughs> where, where never is heard a discouraging word, and the sky is not clouded all day. Wow, we could have another sing song. All of you are invited to a campfire tonight at Matt's to sing Home on the Range. Where never is heard a what? I don't know about you this morning, but speaking for myself, I find it impossible to imagine any home in the here or in the hereafter where never is heard a discouraging word. This longing seems at best to be juvenile naivete and at its worst malicious taunting, pointing as it does back to a genesis before sin or pointing forward to a revelation reality in which sin is forever banished. But what about the here and now? What is the Christ follower to do when reminded of the truth of Isaiah 6, that not only am I a person of unclean lips, but that I, you, we live among a people or a race or a world of unclean lips. When defending the disproportionate amount of coverage of dark and disturbing news stories, Journalists and media specialists often cite what's called the burning barrel effect, which means that if there are two barrels side by side, one is on, one is on fire and the other is not, 
not unlike moths, the one that the majority of people are overwhelmingly drawn to is the one that is on fire. Simply put, the darker the story, the higher the ratings, the more ching-ching in someone's pocket. Now, outside of Christmas Hallmark movies, which if you're a fan of, you have my condolences this morning. <laughs> I feel sorry for your significant other. One can scarcely debate that our world seems to be obsessed with stories that are disheartening and dispiriting and dreary and bleak, which leads us to the question, how much negativity, how many burning barrels can a person stand around inhaling the smoke of before giving way to feelings of discouragement yourself? Before surrendering to an Eeyore-like, why bother? And really, what's the point? Futility. The Bible, God's word, teaches that until we reach our eternal home, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 18 and 21. And so we find Paul writing in his first letter to the Christians living in Thessalonica, encourage each other and build each other up. In Ephesians 4, he writes, let everything you say. This one stings a lot. It was a rough day in my house yesterday with my 12-year-old. And I'm being serious. Let everything you say. Aren't you glad that God is full of grace and mercy? Be good and helpful so that your words will be what? An encouragement to those who are on the other end. Or as the hymn writer describes, words of life and beauty, teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words. Wonderful words. Wonderful words of life. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we don't have to beg you to come. You've been here since any of us were. I thank you for the way you have been glorified. You have glorified yourself through song. And now I pray that what I say would be beneficial, that it would be Holy Spirit inspired, and that what is true would resonate and stick, and that what is not, we would be able to just exercise. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to reign in this place this morning. Make us more like your son, Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. The seeds for this morning's conversation were planted four weeks ago when I was reading the Old Testament book of Zechariah. And quite honestly, the only reason I was in Zechariah, I'm not some super keen Bible scholar, I just hadn't read it for a long time, so I went to Zechariah. So here's the snapshot of the book. The adage, albeit being only partially true, declares that there are only two certainties in life. Death and taxes. That's why I say it's only partially true. There are things that are also true, but that is the adage. And so in an attempt to circumvent the latter, 5,524 years ago, around 600 BC, 
the Judean king Jehoiakim decided that three years of paying taxes to a Babylonian overlord by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar, that was more than enough. And so he cut off the cash flow. A move which precipitated what historians today call the Jewish-Babylonian War. Nebuchadnezzar's response to Jehoiakim's flagrant insubordination, coupled with the obvious loss of revenue, was hard and fast. Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian war machine laid siege to Judah in 597 BC. In 586, they decimated the capital city of Jerusalem, reducing it to rubble. Tens of thousands of Jews suddenly found themselves homeless and exiles. The majority of refugees lived in Babylon for between 50 to 60 years. Somewhere around 538, those of you who love history are grooving on this, those of you that don't are at Tim Hortons right now, but it does have a point, I promise. 538 BC, the new Babylonian king, Cyrus the Great, allowed 43,000 of the exiles to return back home. But there is no doubt that their homecoming was bittersweet, to say the least. They had been away for 50 to 60 years. Their home was desolate. It was after a devastating war. The majority of houses were little more than debris. The walls surrounding the city had been flattened. And so every morning that the child of God opened their eyes, they were confronted with the reality that the wages of living life our way are death upon death upon death. After unpacking their bags, the first priority, as per the Lord's command, was to rebuild the temple. Before long, political wrangling around that project ground it to a standstill, and wanting to make hay while the sun shines, they said, why don't we work on our own homes? Which wouldn't necessarily have been a problem except or until. The longer it went, the longer their own homes became the priority. And all of a sudden, God's temple wasn't even on their radar anymore. So God chose to address this issue of misplaced priorities through the prophetic tag team of Zechariah and Haggai. In Ezra 5 and 1, we read that there were prophets in Jerusalem and Judah, Haggai and Zechariah, who brought messages from the God of Israel, encouraging the people to begin building again. So they did. And the prophets helped them. Just an aside, you've heard of armchair prophets before. There are a lot of prophets who like to sit back and say, this needs to be done, this needs to be done. This. These guys got their hands dirty. They encouraged in word and deed. Haggai was the first prophet out of the gate. He encouraged the Israelites to finish building the temple. God is going to fill the temple with his glory. He's going to fill you, his people, with his glory, as well as he's going to defeat your enemies. Two months later, Zechariah gets tagged into the ring. And his primary role was to address those whose hearts 
were flagging in their endeavors. To those who'd become weary in well-doing. To those who, to quote my favorite Aerosmith line, to those whose get up and go had got up and went. Haggai and Zechariah brought messages from God encouraging the people to begin building again. The, take, the takeaway message for you and I this morning being a little encouragement can go a long way. My dear brothers and sisters, I urge you, never underestimate, never devalue the tremendous impact and influence of being a God-ordained and Holy Spirit-filled encourager. This gets real personal, real quick. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. I'm assuming, because I'm assuming you're all humans, that it has. But speaking from personal experience, there have been seasons in which I have found myself running on fumes, ready to pack it in, wondering what the point of it all was, or quite honestly, even if there was a point at all, Moments in which all you can see is the mountain in front of you. Moments in which it feels like every word coming your way is knocking the stuffing out of you. Seasons in which it feels like St. John of the Cross described, even the heavens are brass. Once you've absorbed one too many of those blows, it's not uncommon to start feeling adrift and listless, and despondent, and depressed, and demoralized, and apathetic, and even angry. And then, in God's grace, by which thankfully he knows our tipping point better than we do, a fellow disciple whose heart and eye and ear is attuned not only to God, but to everyone around them, will hear the Holy Spirit say to them, so-and-so needs. And in obedience, they will come alongside, and they will share one or two authentic, sensitive words that can literally prove to be the lifeline to get you from where you're at to where you need to be. Anybody know what I'm talking about? They speak words that can provide clarity and direction when you don't trust your own discernment. They can speak words that reestablish our focus and test our motives. They can share words that fan the dying embers of a frustrated spirit into flame. They can speak words into and across your life that light a fire in your belly that inspire you to get up and move. They encouraged the people and they began to build. I know it's probably hard for most of you to imagine while looking at me, but if, and don't do it too long because you'll, you'll go blind. But I, I've never been a gym rat. 
I've, I've never, I, I know that's hard to believe. <clears throat> I'm glad my wife isn't here this morning. But on the few occasions when I have darkened the doors of a gym, I have been both enlightened and entertained and intrigued by the folk who take weightlifting seriously. You know, the ones who, and if this is you, don't beat the snot out of me after service. But these are the ones who can't stop looking at themselves in the mirror as every vein is popping out. That's a whole other message. But one learns very quickly from watching and observing that for those to whom weightlifting is a lifestyle, it is not a solo project. It's a group effort. I've been captivated not only at the person who's lifting the weight, but even more so at their spotter that is in their face shouting inspirational messages to keep them going. Now, personally speaking, I am not wired in such a way that a sweaty dude yelling at me to work through the burn is going to keep me going. That's not my love language. But, but, by God's grace, I have been on the receiving end of an email or a card or a call. I have felt an arm strategically placed around my shoulder. I've had the privilege of hearing another voice breathe words of my Heavenly Father into and across my spirit when I felt like I was going to die. In the same vein, Isaiah 35 and 3 reads, Strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. That verse came to mind when reading a story in the Old Testament book of Exodus where I confess this morning, and if you want to debate this after service, you can talk to me, but I don't have a clue what was going on in the story. Nor can I explain what was taking place. So you can throw whatever theories you want at me. I'll nod blankly and say, okay. But this is what I do know. As long as Moses held his shepherd's staff in the air, the Israelite army got the upper hand over the Amalekite army that were fighting down in the valley below. But when Moses' arms got tired, that's a hard one to say, Moses is. When Moses' arms got tired, and when his staff started tilting down, downward, the Amalekites surged ahead in the battle. The battle was like this cosmic teeter-totter upon which Moses' upper body strength was the fulcrum. But regardless how strong Moses was, he was still only immortal. And Exodus 17 and 12 tells us that eventually, and I quote, his arms became so tired he could no longer hold them up. Ever feel like that, church? So Aaron and another guy by the name of Hur, H-U-R, found a stone for him to sit on. And then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands. 
And in this manner, the scriptures say, his hands held steady until sunset. As a result, the general Joshua and the army of Israel overwhelmed the army of Amalek in the valley below. And so over the last four weeks, the Spirit of God has personally been asking me, how good, how consistent, how intentional are you as a Christ follower? And on a corporate level, as a church, when it comes to strengthening those who have tired hands and encouraging those who have weak knees. In the New Testament, we're introduced to a man by the name of Barnabas, whose name literally means, get this, son of encouragement. How great is that? And just so we're eating off the same menu this morning, Godly encouragement has nothing to do with trying to make someone feel temporarily better. It's not applying a Blue's Clues Band-Aid to an emotional Band-Aid. It's more than a team-building exercise in which someone from the great cloud of witnesses on the sidelines yells, You can do it! It has nothing in common with, I think I can, I think I can, self-help talk that propelled the little engine to ascend up the mountain. And it is not reciting sappy, feel-good, fortune cookie, pseudo-spiritual kitsch that you read on a coffee mug or saw posted on Pinterest, i.e., believe in yourself. Things aren't as bad as you think. You're not the only one who has faced this. It's always too early to quit. 80% of success is just showing up. Believe you can and you're halfway there. This too will pass. And my all-time favorite, God will never give us more than we can handle. I implore you, my sisters and brothers, as a brother in Jesus, please don't share these with someone who find themselves at the end of their rope. It's not helpful. At their best, zingers like this might provide a momentary comfort, a shot of emotional adrenaline or caffeine to the psyche. But before long, when reality hits you in the face again, that's gone which is why I believe that Paul Tripp is absolutely correct when stating that one of the biggest reasons that followers of Christ get discouraged is because we either don't see God and or in the moment of our distress, we forget to look for God. If that is indeed true, which I believe it to be, the Christian definition of and or goal for godly encouragement that leads to actual change is all about doing whatever we can to turn people's gaze not inward, but Godward. Helping our sisters and our brothers see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 12 and 12. 12 and 2 is my favorite verse in Scripture. Keeping our eyes on who? Jesus. The author and the finisher of our faith. 99.9, no, 100% of the times that I get myself in trouble, 
can be summed up quite easily. I've taken my eyes off Jesus. The old chorus reminds us, it's when we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. That's when the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Hallelujah. So in our role as a Christ-following encourager, Tripp suggests that there are at least three aspects of Jesus that we can and should draw people's attention to. And I'll close with these three. First, the presence of Christ. The presence of Christ. Some of you are old enough to remember this. Some of you weren't born. Some of you don't like pop, if you want to call it radio. But a few of us will remember in 1990, Bette Midler had a little song that actually became a huge song that Christians all over the West sang along to. And you know, the first part isn't half bad if you're into that style, which I'm not. But the first part, she was pretty good. God is watching us. God is watching us. God is watching us. Beautiful. Stop now while you're ahead. <laughs> because the next line said, from a distance. Hence the heresy. Keeping our eyes on the presence of Christ. Psalm 46 could not be any clearer. God is our refuge and our strength, a what? Very present help in trouble. Therefore, because he is our refuge and strength who is very present, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea we should constantly and consistently be reminding one another that while every one of us will go through seasons in which we feel we are alone, a critical part of the good news of the gospel is that the king whom we serve is Emmanuel, God with us. Hallelujah. The presence of Christ. Secondly, the promises of Christ. The promises of of Christ. Psalm 119 and 11 famously reminds us that your word have I hid in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. One of the blessings, one of the perks of, one of the reasons for immersing ourselves in God's word is that of leaning into the countless promises of the one who is truth, capital T. If, when, and as we take God at his word, his promises inevitably shape the way that we both see and respond to challenges. And so this morning, I'd invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And for any of you who may be feeling like the children of Israel who came back home and everything was wrecked, if you're feeling discouraged this morning or heavy-hearted this morning or vulnerable this morning or ready to quit, in no particular order, and I'm only cracking the surface here, 
be encouraged by these promises of God. God promises that while our tilt-a-whirl, every which way but loose lives seem to be defined by change, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His constancy will never change. God promises to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He promises to give us life, and not just life, but life to the full. He promises to wash our souls clean when we're feeling dirty and ashamed. He promises to discipline us in and out of love. He promises to free us from fear. He promises to provide everything we need to accomplish his will. He promises to welcome us home with open arms every time we stumble and fall. Hallelujah. He promises to guide and direct us when we're at the crossroads of life. He promises to remove our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. He promises to empower us with his Holy Spirit so that we can do far more than we could ever imagine. He promises to provide rest when we are exhausted. He promises to administer a type and a degree of peace that is completely bananas. He promises to heal our broken hearts. He promises that greater is the capital H He that is in us than the small case H He that is in this world. And despite how we may feel, He promises that He who began a good work in us will finish it until it's completed in order that the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hallelujah. You can lift your heads and open your eyes. Isn't it good to be bathed and remind ourselves of the promises of our Father? So godly encouragement highlights the presence of God, the promises of God, And thirdly and finally, godly encouragement will highlight our potential in God. I know, three Ps, it's cheesy. It's not mine, so it works. Whenever we struggle, we are addressing issues of what we are capable of accomplishing. That's our potential. The good news of Jesus is that as a daughter or son of God, our help and hope, thankfully, don't rest on our own wisdom, our own strength, or our own character. If, when, and as we see Jesus living within us, we quickly come to realize that we have more than ourselves to rely on. And boy, oh boy, if that alone doesn't bring a hallelujah to your lips or put a little spring in your step, I have no idea what will. Not only does God love us too much to leave us on our own, he is able to accomplish what we never can. Godly encouragement is pointing others towards God's presence, God's promises, and God's potential. I want to ask Chris and the team to come back. Where never is heard a discouraging word, 
the fact is this morning that discouraging words are warp and woof. I love that expression so much. They're warp and woof of living in a fallen world. They can directly be traced to the moment when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, immediately after which they turned their words against each other and against God, and words have been used as a weapon ever since. Which means that until the Lord returns to earth to make all things new, we will never experience a home where never is hurt, a discouraging word. And, and for any of you who are sitting there thinking, you know, it's easier to look out the window than look in the mirror, I know that to be true. But you can, you can travel to the most remote, off-the-grid spot in the universe because I've met a lot of people who say, you know, the only reason I, I talk, I say negative things is you don't know who I hang with. You don't know who I work with. You don't know that. If you went to the most remote place in the world, your self-talk would be negative. A part of the curse is being condemned to inhale a certain amount of fumes from the burning barrel, even if the barrel's our own. But, as ambassadors of Jesus, as citizens of another kingdom, you and I are called to speak a different, a higher a nobler language and tongue. And if practically you want to know, ah, where do I stand on this, Lord? Ask yourself the question, when you pull in the driveway at home at the end of a day, is whoever's waiting in the house glad to see your car pull in? Ooh, it's gotten really quiet all of a sudden. When you walk into your staff room at work, are your co-workers, oh man, we're so glad to see you. How observant, how sensitive are we to those around us so that we can discern who needs a shot in the arm? who we can tell need their gaze drawn towards the presence of God, the promises of God, and the unlimited potential we have in God. When is the last time that God used you to be an Aaron, to be a Hur, to be a Barnabas, to be a Haggai, to be a Zechariah, when you lifted up someone's arms, when you strengthened feeble knees? I told you yesterday was rough in my house. This exercise starts in our house with our parents, with our kids, with our spouse, with our roommate, and it moves out from there in concentric circles. Listen, I've met all kinds of people, and I've done it myself, who I can encourage each of you. But when you get home after a long day, it starts at home and works its way out. And so, the Jewish leaders were greatly encouraged by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, who brought messages from God, encouraging the people to begin building again. And so they did. Encourage each other, and build each other up. 
Strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to all those who hear them. Would you stand as we close in Christ's name?